got a sexy yeah. young president who dances. So yeah. That must be a great Prime Minister. Prime Minister. I go pardon. Justin. Yeah. Don't yeah. ask us about Canadian politics. That's what we know. Well, you know more than most. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. okay, well, I know who Sonny yeah. is. Yeah. It's just it's because he's a looker. That's the only reason anyone knows him. Ask name another Canadian yeah. Prime Minister ever. Yeah. Yes, Gary. Well, well or, his father. Yeah, or any father. any yeah. Prime Minister. Actually. You were going to say Gary Trudeau, right? Yeah, Trudeau. <laughs> <laughs> he's a cartoonist. He's a cartoonist. Yeah, this is really yeah. embarrassing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> theme song. I don't have a theme song. I have an introductory piece of music, which usually consists of a couple out-of-the-box garage band loops stuck together. Um, but this week, I've got uh, some proper music on the front, and it's care of Michael Braley, who is this uh, young and very talented musician who was playing at the Poets and Players at the Whitworth Gallery. I was there to interview Tanya Hirschman and Joe Bell, and uh, he was a pleasant surprise. Um, He was playing that sort of music to the usual poets and players, people. Ugh, alliteration. And uh, if you have ever been to a Whitworth poetry reading, you will know that it's probably not his usual audience. Um, I imagine he is more used to Oh, what's the word? A more youthful group? Is that fair? He played some very experimental stuff, which I think is quite brave to a to the in a Whitworth audience. And um, I think for the most part, he won them over. The stuff that you've heard at the start of this podcast is from his EP. And EP's called You Said You Weren't Dying. Oh, for God's sake, is that what it's actually called? Figure out what it's called, mate, before you say it. Uh, okay, I was close. It's you said you you said we're not dying. I've fucked this up three times now. Even email conversations with him. And you know when you're begging someone to use their music, maybe get the name of the EP right. You said you. Oh, I did it again. <laughs> you said we're not dying, Michael. Maybe you need to change the name. I don't know, but it's brilliant, anyways. And uh, you can find it on SoundCloud. At soundcloud.com slash Michael Braley. So check out his shit. Tanya Hirschman performed at Poets and Players, and she was her usual great self. She was performing from her new uh, chapbook. And uh, i got to find out what it's called as well, because it's got an equally difficult name to remember. Hang on, what is it called? Tanya Hirschman. You'll notice that I'm in my home studio rather than being outside. There's a reason for that, and I will talk to you about that in a sec. Here it is. Nothing here is wild. Everything is open. Probably easier to remember than I thought, really. 
but she the reason I wanted to interview her is because she's been name checked on virtually every podcast I've done so far, mainly because of the amount of mentoring she does. And it's the same with Joe Bell. I am recording from my home studio because the interview itself was recorded in a coffee shop and there was a lot of noise and I'm, I don't know, I still can't decide whether I do the interviews in public spaces or not. Um, and this one, it really did test the limits of my recorder. It seem, I suppose it seems apt that three people who've consciously decided not to have children have their conversation interrupted by the annoying little shits. Um, so yeah, fair warning, the first third of this podcast has, and it's not even, a, it's, the kid's not even whining. He's at a table next door and we're in a coffee shop. He's just talking, but it still is piercing um, for me anyways. Most people that listen to, the, to it will probably not even have noticed it if I not said anything. If you listen to the first third and you find the kid in, as annoying as I did, stick with it because about a third of the way through the podcast, I stop the podcast and we move, we huddle into this tiny little corner of the coffee shop and we're out of earshot just. Stick with it. It's really worth it because um, we talked about some really interesting things, especially if you're a new writer and you want some information about making money as a writer and improving your writing. I think in the last podcast when I talked to Dave and Ben, they spoke about a the kind of community feel and, and people helping out each other. And I, I couldn't understand why a writer would do that when there's such a small pool of writing gigs and why you would help your competitors to get those gigs. I couldn't understand. Well, that question is well and truly answered in this podcast. We get into all kinds of crazy stuff. We talk about Ovid um, against my will. If you don't know who that is, and you probably don't, I'm not going to get into it. Google it. Listen to the podcast. To be honest, I'm still haven't, I haven't actually edited it, so I'm not sure if I'm going to leave that bit in. Maybe I will because uh, Joe's quite passionate about it and uh, it's very interesting, but it's very high level and well and truly over my head. So we'll see. As I mentioned before, I do, as usual, ask them about money and specifically, how the fuck do I get some uh, as a writer? You may actually hear a touch of desperation in my voice this time as the whole money thing is becoming real for me. As this week, I find out whether I will have a day job by the end. I am up for redundancy and we're getting sent at-risk letters, which means that if you get one of these letters, there's a very good chance you won't have a job the following week. So that's a bit terrifying. So yeah, I really did bring up the money thing because... I don't know. Is there money in podcasting full-time? I don't know. We'll see. They are a lot of fun. Uh, I have to say, it was one of the funnest interviews I've had. And I, I hate saying that sort of thing because then the other people I interviewed go, oh, well, I'm glad you had such a lovely time with them. But yeah, it's true. You know, they're fun people. And you'll also notice, I don't get much of a word in edgewise. I just love doing that when I just yeah, ask one question. And they take that question. And instead of giving me some clinical answer they take it and they run with it and that's one of the beauties of a podcast over a live radio show i think in that you can afford to allow waffle allow for waffle because they there is a loads of waffling and don't worry i edit out most of it but it allows them to get going and 
there are, are some properly inspiring things that they say. So anyway, um, here's the interview. I can tell you right now, you will laugh at least once, uh, probably more, and you will definitely learn something. So listen to it. So when you say fragments, you meant it's... What does that mean? Like? No, we're actually, right now, both signed up without the other knowing to an online poetry school course on fragments. Okay. So that's like what poetry fragments? Mm-hmm. Like fragments of what? Yeah, fragments of anything. Fragments it's a poetry, poetry course. Oh, right, okay. So the poetry school does these fantastic online courses, and we both independently signed up. We're both feeling fragmentary. Yeah. Right. Um, I have not been writing properly for ages and wanted to sort of get back on the horse um, and Tanya has an interest in this kind of writing anyway so mm. we, we found that we'd both signed up to the same course which is great I, I, go I just going to say we had our first online chat because the poetry school you do an assignment you give it in and then every like two weeks there's an online chat which is quite a scary thing because you can't, can't all talk once but we were we were the naughty kids in class in the online chat Right. Yes. <laughs> They're going to have to separate us. But anyway, it was really... It's, well, it's we're already about 100 miles apart. I don't yes, see what I more know, they I can know. do. Really. But this, this week I did write, as the assignment, an ode to a nail file. Mm. A multi-part poem. So multi-part? Already, multi-part ode How to a nail get, file. Oh, oh. It was very short, but the parts were very short. 13 yeah. ways of looking at a nail file, exactly. as it were. I managed six ways of looking mm. at a nail file. But I'd never really studied a nail file in such depth. There's a very famous Wallace Stevens poem called 13 Ways of Looking at a Blackbird. Right. And that's the starting point for this exercise, really, of, of different ways of looking at the thing until it becomes surreal or, or peculiar. So we're both doing that course, but we, what we have in our minds at some point when I stop prevaricating about it <laughs> is to do... Good work. Uh, She's admitted that now. Uh, yes, is to do a performance mm. based on the idea of the unseen. Right, OK. Um, so... I, I am an archaeologist by profession, yep. so 18 years I was an archaeologist. Uh, and so to me, as, as I look out at Manchester now, all of what we see above ground level is kind of, um, is cosmetic, really. Yeah. The, the space where we actually live is not very durable. Everything changes. This hotel wasn't here 20 years ago. Yep. You know. what, what endures is what's below ground level. So the sewers, the electric pipes the foundations of the buildings, the dead people, the dead, the dead, the dead, mm-hmm. um, the canal um, sluices and the water system that feeds it, the river culverts and so on. So yep. all of that unseen city exists. And, you know, we have... I see dead people. We have dead people around us all the she time. Does, apparently. Yeah. So, so, you know, we, we have the dead with us in our daily lives all the time in an archaeological sense. Material culture is constantly reminding us of what we can't see. So that's my background and Tanya's background. Well, I've got the whole science thing going on, which clearly is um, so much about unseen. Right now I'm doing a PhD in creative writing and taking inspiration from particle physics. 
And particle physics, seems, because it seems to me so close to fiction, because we can't see any of these particles directly. We can see, like, the 25th, um, what do they call it, the product of some collision that collided with something else and stuff, and then we just got to assume what is actually there. Yep. So there's the unseen in that kind of, but also in the biochemistry lab, where I spent a year as a writer in residence, everything they did looked like the same clear liquid in a test tube. And you can't really <laughs> see anything. So they it's spent the whole time... as if they were blagging. No. Yeah. Well, they spent so much time making sure they had what they thought was in the test tube, in the test tube. And often then it still didn't work, what it was that they were supposed to... Then be. I love you, the lab, if you're listening to this. You're <laughs> fantastic. But it's very difficult to work, clearly, in those conditions where you can't actually see anything directly with your naked eye. So I'm yeah. really intrigued by that. And also more, I guess, metaphysically, the idea of what do we not see because we don't want to see it? Yeah, what yeah, do we wish yeah. we could unsee? Yeah, yeah. I've yep. kind of taken... Yeah. We've, we've been making notes on this for yeah. like a year and a half. And also, uh, I was thinking about this with poetry, that, that what we're both writing about or not writing about is the, the whole enterprise of poetry is, right, is in the lyric tradition, is... You know, how much am I writing about myself? Mm-hmm. How much am I presenting a version of myself which I wish to be seen, which is slightly cooler or uh, more oversexed, for instance, <laughs> than the actual me? Um, and how far am I avoiding the things that actually I ought to be writing that might be of use to a reader? Um, so there's, there's all those ideas of what is unseen in the things that we write every day. And, and in a sense, we, as the writers, are the worst people on earth to see them. You know, yep. you, you, can't, you can't see the back of your own head. Yep. And you can't. Thank God. Yeah. Because my hair is rapidly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You can only see it in the hairdressers when they show you with yeah. the yeah. mirrors. And, and they just make think it. How freaky that is. Yeah. And I'm like, what? Yeah. <laughs> but what's interesting, this for me, what you said just now, is I've never done a collaboration of any kind. I'm kind of a lone writer, mm-hmm. alone in my room. And I love it. And you love it. And because so I'm it really. freaks me out. Yes. I'm, re- I'm kind of freaked out. And I want to be pushed to do things like that, you know, things I never see in my own work. Or maybe. Yep that we really want to take some risks here and do stuff neither of us would normally do um, and maybe get out from behind all the tricks we use mm-hmm. and tonight you saw some of my tricks which is I get up there and I say I studied science but I was really bad at it and then I yep. kind of riff off on that and yeah. I know I do it I do I do but I'd like to step out from behind those you know tricks. it'd be good if you did that once and then some you know some scientist who was up himself <laughs> went, oh well I'll tell you something and then you just go yeah. come off at the yeah. knees <laughs> I'm waiting to be mansplaining. So I guess that's fair to say that it's still in the planning stages. Oh, that God, yeah, there's yeah, no yeah. physical. It's, we don't even know how there's any kind of physical manifestation. No, we do actually. We have quite a specific idea, but yes. we haven't yet got the permissions to do it. There are two museums in London that. We Why would does really a poet like need to permission use. to do it? Well, because, because you want to do it in these two museums. Yeah, gotcha, because okay. we have to. We have to. They won't Unless let us break, just break in. into. No. Right, fine. So the two museums that we're hoping to work with are. Should we tell people? Yes, I think so. We can. We can say that. It'll sound so. If you regret it later, I'll, you can the, give me a call. The out. curators are going to be on the phone to me. Nobody's going to hear this. No, not from the Sohn Museum, which yeah. is uh, there are two two museums. Amazing place. The Sohn Museum has the kind of archaeological perspective, yep. and it's um, the museum of, of the guy who was the architect for the Bank of England. He was a really influential 18th century architect, but he also, in the best traditions of the British Empire went all over the world and stole things yeah. from their culture. Should we say collected? Yes. we'd like to let them. Oh, I beg to let them. Yes. yes. And, and put them <laughs> yes. in his London house um, in Lincoln's Fields. 
So it's a really extraordinary it's thing. That, I think I've been there. Yeah. Is that the one with really? the sarcophagus? The big yeah, massive yeah. sarcophagus? Yeah. Really yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so weird space as well, yeah. where you look up through all these floors. and yeah. Yeah. But also, so much of his collection, he, did, he, he passed this weird private act of parliament to say that the house must remain exactly as it was on the day he died, so that they yeah. can't replace anything from the current collection with any of his other stuff. So there's all this stuff that's never seen. Yeah. The unseen stuff in that museum includes the Naseby Jewel, which is worth about £20 million, and it was the jewel on Charles I's hat mm. or whatever as he right. went into battle. Personally, I would have put it in a safe place before yeah. going into this. <laughs> but, you know, all, all of these... And Christopher pocket watch? Yeah, there's all kinds of things that can't be seen. So the idea of what can't be seen in any museum... Um, but is there, yeah. is held in trust for the nation. I'm surprised they're that worried about what he's... I mean, what they can't, they, by they law, can't. by law, yeah, they, they cannot. Oh. They, they can't, because it was made well, it an went act through the commons. Yeah, yeah, they can't change the displays in the main museum. They, they can't even have take to keep replacing the carpet with yeah. the identical carpet. Yeah. They I can't know, take <laughs> anything out of the house by Act of Parliament. How ridiculous. So it's crazy. It's and the other museum that we're interested in is the old operating theatre, yeah. which is what is the oldest operating theatre in Europe, and mm. it's somewhere near. Is it Borough Market? Mm. It's right museum. Borough Market. And yeah. you have to you have to get into it through a little unseen passageway. Yeah, yeah. The stairs. It's not very accessible, yeah. unfortunately, but it's just amazing. It's where mm. they used to do the operations, and there's a door from there into the wards of. Is it St Thomas Hospital? Mm. It was right next door. Where Pete studied. Yeah. And so yeah. they've got all the old instruments and all sorts of. Things about operations and you can sort of there's something in the air there there it goes well it was a woman's hospital so what they did was they strapped a suffering woman down to the table in the operating theatre which is called a theatre because it's got all these seats sitting around so the gentleman can light up a cigar and watch (laughs) some woman being given some atrocious uh, procedure in the late 18th or early 19th centuries uh, and learn as as that is done but Mm. there's a whole uh, a feeling of Woman being the spectacle, and all these young men sitting around and learning how to do things to her. Um, it's always all, a woman as well. Yeah, it's a women's hospital, so oh, right, it's always okay. for the treatment of women's conditions. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so there's all kinds of the, the questions of the unseen in the body, the bacteria yeah. and the wobbly organs that hold us all together. Yeah, that's a technical um, term. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> wobbly organs. The curator, we met the curator yeah. of that, that the operating theatre. She seemed very keen. Yes, yeah. Yeah. she had. But she's got to put a, what, get it past somebody. Yet. She had a homemade poncho no, with Batman. Batman Batman logo. And I was so enthralled by the museum. I didn't notice till afterwards when Joe said, did you see what her shawl was? <laughs> Our problem is technically is the Stone Museum has lost its director a year ago, so they're right. kind of in between. Mm, so they haven't quite responded to our entreaties yet. Yes. No. No. Right. Well, there's, there's that... Yes, at There will be. Yes. One yes. day. We're in the extended planning stage. Yes. I think it's inter- tea. Yeah. We're in the coffee drinking stage yes. of that yeah. project. I think it's interesting that you said that you haven't written a lot or you've had this writer's block. I've written and yet you've had loads of things that have come mm. out during that time. Yeah, yeah, so you yeah. wrote all this yeah. stuff before that mm. and that's just kind of like the 52 exactly. project yeah. and, and Kith. I set up the 52 project, which some uh, people will have heard of, to run in 2014. And that was a a poetry prompt a week, mostly written by me, Mm -hmm. with occasional guests like David Morley, who we've just heard. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was a great success, and hundreds of people joined in. And um, it naturally took up the whole of that year. I knew it would. 
but I hadn't really anticipated that it would also take up much of 2015 because putting the book together of that project uh, was rather time-consuming yep. and the sort of aftermath of the project. And, of course, I was putting together my book, Kith, in 2015, but from previous poems. Right. So in terms of actually writing fresh new material... I have honestly written almost nothing for about two years. Sheesh. And there comes a point where that just freaks you out. Mm. And I'm constantly telling other people to keep writing and keep writing. Yeah. And feeling hypocritical about it. I now have this lovely commission from Radio 4 to write a half-hour piece, which goes out on June the 19th. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm really getting to grips with it. And it's, it's just a very interesting and um, brain-wracking time, really, because I'm having to reach back for skills that I haven't practised for a long time, but also I'm using skills that I've absorbed without knowing it in the meantime. And listening, as we just have, to David Morley has been very interesting because his poems about Wisdom Smith and John Clare are so much in the oral tradition, they're so much in the tradition of storytelling and bubbling... um, not too, they are structured, but they don't feel tightly structured. Yep. They're, they're a tradition of tale telling, and that's kind of what I'm trying to harness at the moment. Right. So that was very useful. Do you think that maybe structure is something that would help you get back into writing? Well, that's part of the reason I signed up for this Fragments course, and uh, the course is being led by Catherine Maris, who says that she got into Fragments at exactly a similar point in her writing career. She hadn't written for a long time. It began to frighten her a bit. Mm -hmm. And she thought that Fragments would be a nice, easy way back in. Mm -hmm. What I'm finding through that course, and we're only at the beginning of it, is it's extraordinary, really. We spend the whole of our time as poetry teachers saying, show, don't tell. You know, don't don't give us exposition. Um, Just show us. What fragments do is they take that a step further. So already you're concentrating on the physical, but now there are lots of tiny episodes with gaps in between. Right. And the sequencing of those tiny fragments can um, can make it a much more collaborative piece. So your the reading of such a text is a much more active thing than yep. reading a poem on a paper. So as it happens, it lends itself perfectly to what I'm trying to write at the moment about canals. Right. Somehow, is they, it on they mean that you are totally stuck 
to some extent for the rest with of the your gentleman life. Who, oh. who provided the wow. other half of the gene pool. I believe these things can be done. Ish. Yes, but yeah. I mean you yeah. can't shake them off. No, you know. Yeah, yeah they're always. Once you've reproduced, there'll be a handoff of some exactly. description. Once you reproduce yeah. with them, you have to see them on Saturday afternoons at least. Oh my God, mm. that's terrifying. And weddings and stuff. <laughs> yes, I say, I'm saying nothing. Yeah, because yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to sell a book. I'm trying to promote it. <laughs> Anyone anyway. who's read my book will not no. be surprised by these no. sentiments at all. <laughs> my first short story collection was primarily about different views on motherhood, and it wasn't entirely, com- you know, complimentary. Mm. I was working stuff out. What's your uh, the no, book that you've just finished? Because I, I would love to have said I've read it, but I just picked it up today. I want the poetry chapbook. Yes. Mm, I don't tell know. Tell us about your poetry chapbook. Yes. It makes me grin. The immensely. word chapbook, I don't understand. To me, it sounds yes. like pornography for yeah. posh oh. men. Oh, that would chapbook. sell a lot more. Yes, that will sell a lot, but they'll be a bit disappointed. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's a very it, British term, isn't it? No, apparently not. It's nope. an American term. Is it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, right. The British call it a pamphlet. Oh, right. And it just means a very small collection of poems. So there are 22 poems. I have to keep saying the word poems because I'm quite new as a poet. It's quite <laughs> exciting. So it basically, I know it's a chapbook because it won second prize in a poetry chapbook contest. I'm like, right. okay. But I use the term pamphlet when I'm in the UK because people right. don't really understand it. But I thought chapbooks had something to do with horses in the Wild West. But I well, don't that's chaps, darling. Well, chaps, chapbooks. You have a book that tells you about your chaps. There's sort of trousers with the middle part. No, but it could be a book about trousers. Stop that now. Anyway, it came out eight days ago, Mm. and it's got poems in, which pretty much means I'm a poet as well. A published poet. A published poet. Yeah. It's fantastic. And so, yeah, the launch was eight days ago at the Cork Poetry Festival in Ireland, Mm -hmm. which I have to say like that, which is very annoying. Yeah. Ireland. So these poems are actual... Well, I, I They've got line breaks. Right. All of them except two, I think. Yeah. And those are prose poems, are they? Yes, you were warned. About I did. When I read my prose poem tonight, I could see her <laughs> at the back whispering to her, it doesn't exist, a prose poem is a paragraph. <laughs> yes, two of them are prose poems, even though the one I read tonight, Hold the Baby, was published twice. Once as a piece of flash fiction and once as a poem. First as a poem, actually. Right. So who knows? Well, you've 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 answered my question without me even oh, answering. Great, yeah. it. I, don't I, really... I don't. I didn't. I didn't really understand what the difference is between no, no, no a story and a poem. I kind of know. I thought is it maybe is missing, di- like spoken dialogue. No. What you mean between a, a story a prose and a prose poem? poem? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> One exists and the other doesn't, says Joe. No, um, right. I have no... I'm really very, very fine line. I kind of know it when I see it. Yeah. And when I've written one, I, had a, I have a sense if it's prose poemish. but I think that that is just some way to let me off the hook yeah. in terms of some narrative or something. But I, I don't really care what anybody calls anything. Right. You can, you can call it whatever you like. Anarchist. Right. Yeah, it's wild <laughs> me. Wild. <laughs> Only on the page. Mm. Um, the other part of this podcast, not just, you know talking about what the interesting things you're doing is that it's for a lot of new writers and stuff I know that both of you do a lot of mentoring and um, I guess the first question is why why because it's yeah. the most rewarding thing you can possibly do um, if you're just there are two kinds of poets there are the poets who are interested in poetry and the poets who are interested in their own poetry mm. and the second kind aren't really poets um, they are um, onanists, shall we say. Right. Um, they, they are, you've got to contribute to the ecology. And what I find more and more is how much we can all learn from each other. So when I run workshops, for instance, now, I tend um, to 
not read round work. We don't sit round and say, so Deirdre, what did you write? Yeah. 16 people read their first draft of a poem that they wrote five minutes ago. Instead, we, we converse a lot more and discuss and we learn from each other a great deal more. Mm-hmm. Mentoring is kind of an extension of that where you have a one-on-one session with someone and so long as they come with an open mind ready to receive critique and so long as you're listening to what they're saying and not going at it like an instructor then it can be the most fruitful relationship in terms of improving their writing and your own I mean I I learned so much what I I learned from mentoring over and over again is the mistakes that we all make in poetry so like what? well the things I guess that I find myself saying over and over again and then returning to my own work and checking like mad are show, don't tell, don't give me these abstracts, don't give me grief and pain and joy and loss and sorrow. These are the things you're writing about. If you use those words, then that's not a work of art, that's reportage. Um, So there's that. Uh, The other thing is finish when you need to finish, not not to go on and explain too much. And a lot lately I'm speaking to people about the boundary between autobiography and poetry. So... Of course we start from autobiography because that's all we've got. We've only got our own life experience. But if you go no further than that, if you just tell about the the wonderful sweeties that grandma used to give you when you were a kid or that house you used to live in, then all you're doing is reporting a bit of your life. You're you're the pub bore, basically. (laughs) So poetry has to go beyond that so that the reader gets something out of it as well. It's not right. all about the writer showing off. It's about a conversation between reader and writer. It's, right. It has to be, for me, an act of communication, yeah. as well as a technically patterned piece of writing. Right. Is that what you mentor people? Well, like, is that why... Is, that was... That's a lovely, clear explanation. It's yeah. very interesting when we have conversations about what the difference might be between poetry and short fiction, for example, and short mm-hmm. stories, and what are the similarities, but what are the different needs? So I only mentor people in short stories because if I'm qualified for anything, it would be that, and I have no idea right. what to say Even about Even though you're an award-winning poet now. It's only been eight days. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what to say about poems. I really don't know what to say about poems. Uh, but if someone presents me with a short story, I'm... I'm in that land and yeah. I know what the language is and I can see things. Um, and very similarly to what Joe was saying, the question is what makes a story? Yeah. And it's not just enough. Some some short stories as thinly veiled autobiography, yes. but the sense of what makes a good story is the thing that's often... It's hard, really hard to grasp at the beginning. Um, and what I try and do through the mentoring, and I... I generally, I've done a few mentoring one-on-one online and a lot, a lot of it for me though has been Arvon courses and the one-on-one tutorials which are just really powerful and often quite moving for, for both of us really yeah. is I try and open the stories up for people I would never say this isn't good or this is wrong yeah. as I've had that done to me as a writer in workshops I took because mm. I spent seven years just taking workshops and not sending yeah. work out anywhere so I try and open things up and we talk about this a lot about in terms of permission mm. and it's amazing 
what people don't feel they have permission to do. Like, for example, yes. you write your first draft of a story and you think, what I've written as the first line must stay the first line. Yes. So one of the things I try and do in mentoring or critiquing is saying, you could start it here, mm-hmm. or you could start it here, and it will be a different story wherever you start it. So I yeah. try and open it up and ask questions and say, like, for example, you've done it in the past tense. What would make it different if it was the present tense? What, you know, read it out loud to yourself, the feeling. So just to open things up and try and pass on permissions that have been passed on to me to say, take it apart and see, you know, make conscious choices of why you're doing the things you're doing. Yeah. And think about the story you want to tell. Yes. Really, in the way you want to tell but it. But without being wedded to the details of how it actually happened. Because I think we've talked before about, um, uh, I had a lady in a workshop once who... She'd written all these poems in which everything happened in Cheltenham. And I said, well, that's great, but, you know, it would scan better if it was Stroud. And she said, but it happened in Cheltenham. Yes. And, and she was very wedded to this. I was, I was telling yeah. one of my uh, folk in a mentoring session about this lately. And, and after a little while, he started looking at his own drafts and he said, that's a bit Cheltenham, that one. Yeah. <laughs> it is a bit Cheltenham, yeah. It is a bit Cheltenham. You know, it doesn't have to be in Cheltenham. It can be in Stroud if it fits better. Yeah. That's the kind of little thing, I mean, that, that makes the difference between you writing poetry as an act of witness. Yeah. This happened to me. I am standing up, brothers and sisters, to tell you about it. And poetry as an act of communication mm. where you're kind of saying, I have found something out that might be of use to you. It has cost me something to learn it. Yep. Here it is. But I think all poet for me, all poems, and perhaps also, I don't know, perhaps all writing is, is saying, this is what I think the world is like. Do you think it's mm. like that? Mm. Do you think it's like that? And sometimes in a desperately needy sense, and sometimes just in a spirit of genuine inquiry, and the communication happens when the reader addresses themselves to that question, whether their answer is yes or no. Yeah. And for me as well, that in the short story, it's about leaving gaps. I think probably in poems as well, leaving gaps for the reader to put themselves in there. So it's about knowing how little you can get away with to tell your story. And so often I see, especially in writers who are just starting out, they... Um, in the run-up to something, they tell you what's, what they're about to tell you, then they tell it to you, and then they tell you what they've just told you. <laughs> and so I gently say, you don't really need all of that, just go yeah. for it, just, just, just tell them. <laughs> and also, tr- trust your reader, because they're really smart. Yeah. Yes, you know, so they'll the get it. So often, yeah. and we all do this, we think the reader is somehow a little bit thicker than yeah. us. The thing don't is, do the reader is quite often yeah. cleverer than us anyway. But if they don't get yep. it, it doesn't matter. No, 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 and also, oh God, let me tell you, um, one of the worst writing workshops I went on in America, which I'm not, I'm not going to tell you who, who uh, led it. But he basically said, you have to write your story for the woman on the bus. Mm. Which is just the most hideous because phrase, firstly, because thick, A, she's she? a bit yeah. thick, mm. and B, the thick people have to understand your story. And she's a woman, so she's obviously And she's busy. a woman, and public transport. <laughs> <laughs> what about public transport? So he also had all these rules for writing, and I'm really suspicious of anyone who has she rules is an anarchist. for anything. But that's what yeah. is so exciting yes. about the way that Tanya writes, because oh. she, she makes me feel terribly mainstream and old-fashioned, because oh. I insist on things like, oh, I didn't know a story, or whatever. <laughs> what? And... and, and Tanya is endlessly inquisitive and poking things with a stick to see if they really need to be yeah. that way. I bet they don't. I bet they don't. It's but a scientist, isn't it? I, I poke. Just yeah. Say, yeah. 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 Well, the archaeologist doesn't. Yeah, exactly. Think that way. Well, the, it's interesting. The, the more I write, the more I realise that I have not made a career change at all and right. that it's the same 
dam activity all Digging. along. Yeah, ar- yeah. Archaeology is not is absolutely not about the thing. It is it is not about the signifier. It's about that which is signified. So um, you find a layer of ash. Uh, and it's not about a layer of ash, it's about the fact that the city burned down. Mm-hmm. You're extrapolating from it. And, and the enterprise Stories. of poetry, yeah, it's exactly mm-hmm. the same. Show, don't tell. Show me a layer of ash. I will work out that the city burned down. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you don't need to say, oh, look, the city burned down. Do you see mm-hmm. the city burned down? That's yeah. why <laughs> there's this layer of ash. They left you a note yeah. saying, oh, yeah, the city burned down. Oh, man. 35 BC. Not that we knew it was BC at the time. <laughs> yes, yeah. but we thought we could help you with a little hint. Yeah. yeah. So, so it, it was is, Earth all along. Yeah. <laughs> and and archaeology is all about subtext as well because um, archaeology is not always. Uh, history is about the grand monuments, if you like, the Blenheim mm. palaces. Archaeology is about hairpins dropped between the floorboards. There yep. are things that you didn't even know had fallen out of your pocket on the way between here and the venue we've just come from. Mm-hmm. That's archaeology. Archaeology is utterly democratic. No one um, can choose to be left out of that record. Yeah. And likewise, no one can choose, no one can buy their way into it. It is almost entirely random. Mm-hmm. What will survive of us is not love, but um, mostly our, our felt buckles, key rings, yeah. the yeah. things that hold our trousers up, mm-hmm. actually. <laughs> so, Joe and I have these conversations about mm-hmm. science because I'm obviously the science geek. Tanya she, has conversations about science. No, she says she doesn't like science, and I say, Joe's a history geek, and, and, and it's exactly the same. It's just a certain geekiness. But also, I came up with a nice phrase that I like to learn now, that, that, that science is just a framework for curiosity. And yeah. it just yeah. the way you talk yeah. about archaeology, yeah. it's exactly yeah. the same. Exactly. Well, but what we're curious about, actually, is ourselves, isn't it? Mm. And so How we work, yeah, how it works. Using the structure of the atom or gravitational waves or the writings of Ovid. thrill when you say gravitational You need to get out. I do, really. Um, whereas I stay in and read the works of Ovid I know. Um, and, and oh. yeah it is another another Samuel Pete Samuel oh he's so rude she's like let me tell you about oh, who's so the Russian rude. bloke Pup, not Pumpernickel what was his name <laughs> the great Pumpernickel <laughs> the Russian bloke <laughs> No, Catherine the Great. Catherine the Great. Catherine the Great. She's a woman. Um, Peter the Great. Oh, yeah. No, we were reading about Peter the Great on our holiday in Cornwall because that's the kind of people we are. No one will ever want to hang out with us again. Peter the Great went to the Tuesday Torture Club. Peter the Great went to the Tuesday Torture Club. He went and met the members of the forget, They were called the Torture Club and they met, as I recall, on Tuesday nights in a basement. And they used to practice torture on one another so that if they should ever be tortured, they, they, they'd know what to expect right. and be up for it, yes. as it were. So things maybe have evolved since then. This they is the kind of things I learn when I'm with Joe. I yeah. learn a lot. I don't know why she yeah. It's just fantastic. <laughs> I don't remember all of it, clearly, because the whole names thing. Yeah, really, like childbirth, you forget. So you can, <laughs> How you do we know? To <laughs> but we're geeks, frankly. Yeah. Total geeks. Yes, right. In our own way. Well, you mentioned it, and I put this bloody question in. <laughs> Because you've Is been talking Ovid? about yes. Have you had to read the whole anything. works of Ovid? In order uh, to no. <laughs> yeah, and by that I mean the Wikipedia page yes. on Ovid. <laughs> yes. Why is it, really. why is he important? Like I know nothing. It was her. Well, it's when you should ask me that question. Oh, God. If, you, if this goes on too long, I will edit it <laughs> straight the cafe out. Cafe shuts <laughs> in twenty minutes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, so Ovid is interesting because the sexual is always political, right. and, and generally. 
that's a private and domestic thing. It's a little power battle between man and woman or whatever yeah. configuration of genders you've got in your household. But um, it's about that private battle for who is, as it were, on top. Right. Um, and, but Ovid is writing about sex in a way which is also explicitly political and politically explicit. It's, a, it's about the power struggles of Rome in the first century BC. Right. So the Emperor Augustus, who is his mate, is a bit po-faced about morality mm-hmm. and he starts passing all these laws which no government anywhere in the world could ever have hoped to enforce about adultery mm-hmm. being a bad thing. Yeah. Of course adultery is a bad thing. Try and stop it. Um, mm-hmm. So Ovid, at that point, starts writing the Art Amatoria which is about the art, art starting, A-R-S. Yeah, it's right. no, yeah. art. Yeah, it's <laughs> art. Yeah, it's um, <laughs> I'm glad you asked. A, a, a lovely coincidence of yeah. tropes. I find oh, I need yeah. to ask a lot of questions. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. As my, my ex used to say through gritted teeth, every day is a school day with Joe. <laughs> um, so the Ars Amatoria is written at that time to wind Augustus up, basically. So he's writing about how to commit adultery. He's writing about how to oil a feather and let yourself <laughs> in through oh, the sorry. lock, no, the actual right, lock okay. of, yeah, yeah, of yeah, your yeah. lover's bedroom without her husband finding out. And, and basically writing a manual of how to seduce married women or virgins and get access to their delights. And right. it's, so it's, it's extremely naughty. And for that, he gets sent to, uh, not Belgium, somewhere um, further. No, he gets, he gets, he gets, I didn't say that. But he got sent somewhere on the Black Sea coast, somewhere very, very north of Rome. Right. and considered extremely unfashionable, where right. he spent the next ten years writing back to Augustus saying, oh, go on, let me come back, let me come back. I promise mm. I won't write about shagging anymore. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. I mean, they're amazing poems. And um, also in his Metamorphoses, he's, um, he's really exploring what art can do and mm-hmm. how it transforms us. So the story that... There's kind of a rule that every poet has at some point in their career to write about the satire Marcias. Because mm-hmm. Marcias is a, a ugly little geezer mm-hmm. who um, picks up the flute that Aphrodite throws away. Aphrodite throws it away because she's a goddess and she's trying to learn this thing and it makes her cheeks blow out and she looks mm-hmm. a bit ugly. And she's like, I'm not, look at this, it makes my face a funny shape. I shall throw it away. So Marcias picks it up, learns to play it, learns and learns and learns, puts the time in, puts mm-hmm. the 10,000 hours in exactly. to right. learn to play the flute. And there he is. An ugly, ungodlike creature, one might say, a troll, mm-hmm. daring to make art. Right. And for that, he has to be flayed to death. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Ted Hughes writes possibly the most powerful version of Marcias about him um, being shucked of his skin and it's collecting around his ankles like trousers. Mm-hmm. And it's such a vile and powerful image, but it's also, Tony Harrison's written a version as well, it's about ownership of art and mm-hmm. and that the act of making art is a subversive act and there's no act more subversive now if you do it well than rewriting a classic in a properly um, modern and relevant sense. I mean, there, you know, there, mm-hmm. there are, of course, there are more subversive things to do but if you do it well and not just to piss off the upper classes there is a real virtue in it. So I'm very interested in it. Mm. 
Wow. Please. I didn't even know where to go from there. I know you did ask. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, you can cut that out and colour it. Down. Sometimes <laughs> I, I try and you know, Joe's reading something and I'll be like, I'll download it on my Kindle and I start yeah. trying to read it and I'm just it's just it's just not me. It's much better when you tell me and then yeah. I go back to my popular science and think, oh, it is. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. No, it sounds really good. Yeah, it does. When you, when, when you <laughs> say it, when you say it is on the page. Yeah. Yeah. Better than the Wikipedia read, page. Uh, definitely. Read, read Ted yeah. Hughes Martias. It is okay. absolutely stunning. It's it's uncomfortable and visceral and it shows you something. Yeah. I think that's kind of because I've been reading your poetry mm. uncomfortable well I would say uncomfortable <laughs> but it gets to the point where I think by the third fourth one in I just think everything is sex oh it's a running stream oh I get it <laughs> yes, I didn't notice that, did you, when you were writing it? Well, I wrote that poem Lifted, which is, I thought it was about a lock. You know, I yeah. really thought it was about a lock. And then Alan Buckley saw it and he said, even when you write about canals, it's always about shagging. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Uh, and so I met someone the other day who'd been studying it with a study group. And he said, well, it's, it's basically all about sex, with mm. a bit of locks thrown in. <laughs> yeah. But actually, what's so amazing, I love that poem. And when I first read it, I'd never been on a narrow boat because I know that's what they're called now yes. oh, yeah, don't say barge no god no, no 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 so then I went boating with Joe and we go through a lock and I'm like <laughs> it's <laughs> like this <laughs> yeah. that lifted is actually both a beautiful poem and an exact description of what happens which yeah. is what I love about and just to make sure that she got and there was it, no I made shagging. her work 36 yes. locks in a row yes. oh. and when we got to the top of the hill you understood the poem perfectly. totally totally <laughs> I've done, I've, but it's such I've an art there. to describe that process Beautifully yeah. and poetically and accurately, and in a way that you know has never been seen before. Well, actually, that one I read. Um, the great um, force behind the waterways restorations has been Tom Rolt, who wrote a, a seminal book called Narrowboat. Mm-hmm. His widow, Sonia Rolt, was with us until last year, and she was kind of the queen mother of the waterways. Yep. And she came to hear me speaking about her husband's book. How how very dare I? Yeah. And I read Lifted thinking, oh my God, Sonia Rolt is sitting in the front row. Mm. I'm going to make a complete hash of this. And I read it, and she came up to me afterwards and said, I just wanted to say, that's absolutely right. That's just what it's like. <laughs> and then she said, by the way, I thought you'd be different than you are. And I said, what, what do you mean? She said, rougher. <laughs> <laughs> um, More boaty. Yeah, yeah, I thought you'd have tattoos. And I showed her the little tattoo on my wrist, and she went, ah, oh, well, there you are. <laughs> Genteel. <laughs> but I mean, if you're, if anyone's going to be able to do it, it's the canal poet, or no, the former. I've been defrocked. I've been defrocked. My frock has been given to Luke Kennard. How many are there? Well, there's just one at a time. <laughs> yeah, but how many are there total? Just you and Luke. Yes. Yeah. 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 <laughs> you just pass so it back and forth. Yeah. No, they invented it for me, darling. Yeah. Um, or at least they gave me the first one, mm. uh, and I did it for three years. It was supposed to be one. Um, but I did it for three. I think they were just trying to keep me going until I gave them their money's worth. Yeah. Um, and Luke, I think you gave them. Their <laughs> I don't think so. And then Luke uh, is doing it now, who will have a completely yeah. different perspective because he is not a boater at all, and he comes to it with completely fresh eyes. I don't understand. If he's not a boater, how can he be the canal? From the towpath. Well, from the towpath yeah. side, I guess. Yeah. What do you yeah. mean? He sits on the towpath and watches boats. Well, I, I don't know. I guess uh, he will do it his own way. He's just oh. written one which is partly about the canals of India. So he will wow. have um, right. a, a sort of non-combatant <coughs> view of the canal. And he writes prose poems too. Oh. So 
It's all wild now. Wild. Those, are, those are Joe's favorite ones. I'm, My I'm sure. faves. <coughs> yeah. Yeah. Those things that don't exist. They don't exist. Can I? Can I say something? You may. Is that right? Listening to your previous podcast, which is really fascinating, and one very okay. interesting thing that Dave. Or maybe it was Ben said, because I couldn't really <laughs> tell who was who, but please edit that out. <laughs> it's like, they were talking about um, Joe and Paul McVeigh and me yep, and what we do in terms of spreading the word for submissions opportunities. Yes. They were saying, we don't understand why they do that, because there's so much competition anyway between your story. Oh, you said that. Yes. And I thought, that's so interesting, because that, well, every now and then it crosses my mind. I'm like, why am I telling everybody else about this? But... But, but I don't think you I know. don't see. I don't. That's that's why well, I ask people what? that. I always because I don't. I think especially with. I mean, for novelists, supply far outstrips demand. But there is and not poets, a finite worse, amount of success for it. Yeah, no. It, well, is it not? Um, in terms of competition, I don't know really. I'm not. I'm not qualified to to compare the two. Mm. But. I do know that your success is not diminished by somebody no. else's. Yeah. And what I hate is that, again, it comes back to, are you interested in writing or are you interested in your writing? Yep. I'm interested in writing. I yep. want good writers to succeed. I want good writing to be available to me yep. to read. Um, but you also want to make a living. I also want to make a living, but I have not found that making a living is diminished by the fact that I'm, I try to be generous to other people. In fact, it, mm. it, quite, it's, the opposite. It's quite the opposite. Quite exactly the opposite. The opposite. Yeah. I mean, because I set up, um, after I got the book deal for my first book with Salt in 2007 <clears> and was so freaked out that I couldn't really write for quite a while, so I thought I'd set up the short review <clears> as an online journal to review short story collections to try and plug what I saw as a gap in the market. And I just thought it would be me and a few friends. And it turned yeah. out, I ended up with 40 reviewers worldwide and this thing took off and... Um, and it ended up having wonderful benefits for me and my own writing that I never foresaw. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't plan and didn't do it exactly, for. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. But it's been such a joy. And short stops, for me, I set that up again because I was hoping someone else would do it and then mm. they didn't. But it was about celebrating what mm. is going on in this country with the yeah. short story. Well, Maya right. Angelou, uh, is it Maya? No, it's not Maya Angelou. It's Toni Morrison says, if there's a book you want to read and it doesn't mm. exist, you better write it. Right. Mm. Um, and I set up 52 for exactly the same reason that, mm-hmm. that I, I felt there wasn't not a gap in the market but a gap in the ecology mm. for this mm-hmm. that, that there were lots of capable writers who wanted a bit of support a bit of permission and a bit of a kick up the arse yep. and 52 was those things and because I did it and gave that, you could call it karma, yep. but what I ended up with was a sort of congregation of 600 people who basically owed me one yep. bless them now I didn't set it up for that yep. but what I have now is a network of people who who wish me well and yep. and who <coughs> will spread the word very often about things that I'm doing and, and I have so many more people at my readings and so much more of a market for anything that I do mm-hmm. because I did that so you know if you're if you're so concerned with your own success that there isn't room in your heart for anybody else's, you know, it's not just a Californian sort of, hey, we want everyone to free be love. happy. Yeah, it's not just sort of a free love thing. It's, it's actually quite a grounded thing to do, but it's also about not being the pub bore. If you sit yep. in the corner of Facebook and talk only about yourself, I'm going to mute you because, yep. you know, life is too short. I find it so much easier to celebrate other people's achievements. I've, I'm quite awkward in terms of my own things, and I find that I, I'm is. only able to do sort of any kind of self-promotion if it's literally not more than 10% of what I'm doing. The other 90% of the time is doing short stops and community yep. work and passing things on and celebrating other yep. people. Otherwise, I 
I just couldn't do it. I'm just too uncomfortable. Yeah. Whereas I have a much larger ego, but a shorter attention span. <laughs> so I'm all about me. Yeah. And while I'm promoting me, I think, oh, look, here's an interesting thing about the poetry society. And I, I stick it out there. Yeah. I think the, the reason I ask that is because uh, I'm someone who's... Who, the idea of writing for a living just seems like such a foreign concept hmm. to me. Like, how do you... How does... And I know this is a terrible terribly pragmatic thing to ask after you've been talking it's about all these lovely no, questions but how the, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm about to be made redundant as well oh I know I don't, congratulations don't, I know. I time see, to that's finish the novel well yeah but see no I know it's a bit what crap. does a person how do you make money doing it it's a, I think it's such a good question and I generally mention it every time I give a workshop because there's no reason why you can't mention money in the same breath <laughs> as art and there's these yeah. conversations we're having on Twitter all the time about writers being paid yeah. artists being paid I still find it very awkward. I have this every week, and we've chatted about this, me and Joe. How do you say in an email when someone invites you to do something and they don't mention any money, and then you have to write back and in some awkward way say something well, like, well, yeah. I don't usually do I'm things anymore without being paid. Yeah. I, I tend to say, well, yeah. before we go any further, can yeah. I raise the sordid question of money? You've got yeah. the phrasing down. Yeah. I need yeah. your phrasing. Yeah. Or, yeah. or I say, well, that, that would be great to come to... Um, the outer Hebrides <laughs> yeah. next Tuesday under my own steam yeah. for our workshop believe but, me we've all uh, been in oh, that yeah. position yeah. 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 but, um, but uh, can we discuss expenses before yeah. we take the conversation any further uh, Plus, there is, but, I mean expenses aren't enough though no, no, they're no. Not. of course not no, no. But, but if you start the conversation like that yeah but it's, yeah, it's so awkward. It's a, it's yeah. a question. See, I don't mind that at all. Like, I'm the other way around. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, I think money first. And then yeah. But the thing is, I don't have the, you know, I haven't had enough. I've had loads of like, essays and things published. Yeah. But yeah. as far as creative work is concerned. You've got to get the momentum. That's right. you got to do that first. Yeah. But, I mean, it is a question that, that uh, it's the question that dare not speak its name, really, mm. about how to make money. The answer in terms of poetry is you can't. You yep. cannot make a living out of writing poetry. Yep. Nobody makes a living out of writing poetry. Caroline Duffy yeah. does not make a living out of writing yeah. poetry. She makes a living. Most of the poets who, who are able to make something like a living have a teaching job in yep. some capacity. Or they, well, let me speak about me. So I, I write, mm -hmm. of course, and the books, I mean, the books, don't even think about books of poetry as a way of making money. They are calling cards. Yeah. You might make a couple of quid, if you're very lucky, you'll make five quid a copy on a book, which in my case took me seven years to write. It's a poor return, yeah. frankly. And although it's selling very well, it's sold about 2,000 copies so far, and that for a poetry book in, a, in less than a year is really good. Yeah. But it ain't going to pay any bills. So that is basically you use that to get your name out there and to get, do workshops and the stuff. The book wedges the door open so right. I can get yes. in and do a work, Go, workshop yeah. or so that I can uh, be invited to a conference mm -hmm. to speak as a poet in residence yeah. or work with a community group. But also, when people talk about how, how difficult it is to make a living as a writer, it's often because they expect that living to be in the gift of someone else. Now, hey, get mm -hmm. off your arse. If there's a project you want to do, do it. Yeah. If there is funding that you want, go for it. Yeah. Three times out of four, you will fail. Yeah. You don't want it to succeed four times out of four, or you'll have more work than you know what to do with. Yeah. <laughs> but you, you have to apply, you have to make projects that you want to do, and you have to do them. Yeah. And by the same token, you have to avoid, I think, work that you don't want to do. So for me, that means schools. I don't work with schools because they're full of children. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't work with schools as a rule because they scare the crap out of me. Because they're all very honest. And, and so, yeah, and yeah. occasionally, yes, I don't yeah. want that. No. And occasionally when 
I'm asked to do work in schools, I think, well, if I did it for this very appealing mm-hmm. sum of money and was good at it, then they would ask me to do it again. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I would have to do loads of it. And yeah. I'd end up doing something I don't want to do nine to five. Well, I haven't made all this effort to enter this ridiculous, precarious work yeah. in order to do something I don't want to do. Right. You know. So the actual write, like, what percentage of your, well, I mean, yours has been zero for the last couple of years, so yeah. about how much writing you actually do, but, like, maybe Tanya, how much writing do you do? I don't know. Well. Is it, is it most, is, is the it's like bulk all the of your day, like, 90%, is it mostly, like, it's mostly ad, admin. Right. <laughs> it's mostly email and admin and, and yeah. things like that, but in my first year of seriously writing poetry, which, strangely enough, coincided with meeting Jo, mm-hmm. um, I wrote about 100 poems in a year. She is most of them were terrible. Mm-hmm. But, yeah. well, no, when, when your writing mus- muscle is warmed up, when you put in that mm-hmm. 10,000 hours, it just sort of keeps going. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I wanted to say, in terms of the money and that kind of thing, and opportunities, when I said tonight about being writer-in-residence in a biochemistry lab, I approached the university. Mm-hmm. The university said, we'd be delighted to have you, but we can't pay you. So I started doing it and then applied for Arts Council funding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Didn't get yeah. Arts Council funding yeah. the first time, yeah. reapplied, yeah. but decided I was just going to do that on my own. And also I have a great job right now as a Royal Literary Fund writing fellow in Bristol University across the science faculties, yeah. helping science students with their writing. And the Royal Literary Fund's whole raison d'etre is to give writers money for working two days a week so that funds you to write the rest of the week. And right. they are fantastic, even though it's quite tiring. Yeah. I think the key is you do what you love mm-hmm. humbly yeah. and in a spirit of receiving open critique until you're good enough yeah. that you can that people will ask you to do it for money and yeah. you keep doing it humbly and in a spirit yeah. of, of open yeah. critique because otherwise you won't be any good You've got to f- I think in all of, of the work that we do, we've spoken about this a bit you, you're trying to find the balance between humility and confidence That yeah. Yeah, you've got to be confident enough to put yourself out there and say, I do this, mm-hmm. I'm reasonably good at it, yep. I'm worth X amount of money, yeah. book me yeah. and humble enough to accept that there are other people out there going for the same work mm-hmm. who may indeed be better at it than you or better fitted at, to it than yeah. you. And if you can't do a gig next Thursday in the Outer Hebrides, then you point them to someone who can. Yeah. And yes, mm-hmm. that may deny you the opportunity of ever working with that client again. Yeah. But the person you've just got the gig for will never forget your name. Yeah. And you never know when things come back several years later and you yeah. just see how things are. Yeah. Just so grateful. It all still seems like quite a miracle to me. Doesn't it just make you want to be friends with both of them? If you have a chance to get mentored by either of them, come to your town and do workshops, um, you'd be a fool not to go if you're a new writer because A, you'll learn something, and B, they genuinely care about making you a better writer, um, even if they don't know you, which I, it's something that is still unfathomable to me because you know I'm a typical aspiring novelist where I take all the the uh, tips and keep them for myself well i say that i'm doing a podcast but this podcast is even a front for just meeting people so i can sell my novel you know everything i do is for a reason I and mean, they're mostly quite selfish reasons whereas with tanya and joe and for a lot of the people i speak to on this podcast it's because they genuinely care about you and your writing right so that's it bye <laughs>